0: Hang on a second here, excuse me. Ah, oh my gosh, yes. Okay, so we're ready to go. Okay. One two three testing one two three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode: The Prophet Who Kicked Hornets' Nests. I'm happy to have with me tonight Bill Reel. How are you doing today, RFM? I am doing absolutely fantastic. Thank you. We are recording this on September nineteenth, two thousand and nineteen, which is a Thursday, and we are doing a special emergency broadcast of the Radio Free Mormon Network regarding the talk that was given by President Nelson at BYU just two days ago on September 17th, 2019, Tuesday at 11 o'clock a.m. local time at BYU before an absolutely packed auditorium of BYU college students. This was a remarkable address given by President Nelson. It may even be called Historic because basically, here's my takeaway from his talk. What President Nelson did was he sought to give an explanation regarding the policy of exclusion from 2015 and then its reversal in April of 2019. The very fact that he had to give this address speaks to me of a great deal of pressure that was building up behind the scenes that he came forward and felt that he had to give an explanation as to how it was that the first policy could be given by revelation, which he himself stated in January of 2016, that the initial policy was given by revelation to President Monson, and that all of the apostles, including himself, were privileged to sustain that revelation, and that they saw the Spirit move upon President Monson, and they understood, too, that it was the will of God. And yet, three and a half years later, here's President Nelson, now president of the church, claiming by revelation, at least through his cat's paw, Elder Oaks, who made the announcement, that the reversal of the policy was also given by revelation. So here's the thing. The first policy created a great deal of controversy in the church and even incited mass resignations by members of the church because they simply could not understand how this could possibly be from God that so unchristlike a policy could have come from Jesus Christ himself. So three and a half years later, they reverse the policy. They also do it by revelation. I think that they thought this would take care of the problem, but apparently it has not. Because six months later, which is this past Tuesday now, in September of 2019, President Nelson goes before an audience at BYU. And by the way, he doesn't just show up unannounced. He tweets out beforehand An invitation, because he wants to make sure everybody knows he's going to be speaking at this BYU devotional and that everybody is going to be present or tuning in and listening live on their mobile devices. So now he has to come forward and give an explanation as to how this could be and him still be a prophet of God. So this speaks to me of a great deal of pressure building up behind the scenes because I cannot imagine any explanation for why it is that President Nelson would give this talk unless he felt like he had to give the talk. What are your
1: thoughts about that, Bill? No, I agree with you. I, I think that in seeing what the three and a half years of that policy did and how many members sacrificed their their own opinion, the own their own ground they held and just looked to the church and said, well, those guys must know better than me. And then sensing the damage done, and then to have the church come out and seemingly reverse it, which by the way, when we get into this audio, I don't think is the case at all now um, in the way that he explains it. And I'll, and I'll talk about that when we get to that part. But I think a lot of people in these three and a half years felt like, yeah, it looks like kids are dying. It looks like suicides are happening. It looks like It looks like there's lots of turmoil in families. It looks like there's lots of hurt being caused by this And, and yet when Nelson reverses it, now you have all of those people going like, what the heck, like inside, like what the heck, why did that happen? Why did we do it in the first place then? And so I I imagine from their point of view, some kind of explanation was needed just as much as he had to explain himself the first go around in early 2016 or the end of 2015 when he claimed it was a revelation. Right, and so now he has to give this talk and this is the albatross
0: that President Nelson has placed squarely around his own neck claiming that the policy, which he probably was very instrumental in promoting and getting passed from reports we've heard from Greg Prince and others, but regardless of that, he certainly placed the albatross on his neck when he claimed it was revelation. Now he's claiming it's revelation, the reversal, and he hoped, I'm sure, that that would take care of the problem. It obviously did not, and that there are many people who are questioning his prophetic ability and his role in Mandalus prophet if he claims one thing to be a revelation, the initial policy, and then three and a half years later, he's claiming the reversal of that same policy to be revelation. It is obvious to me from this talk that that is what is going on behind the scenes and he wants to address it. To give a general overview, he gives a talk which is structured around five truths and he talks about each of these truths in order. It soon became apparent to me while I was listening to this talk live on Tuesday morning that the entire talk is structured around truth number four. That's really what he's driving at. That is the focal point of his entire talk and that is where he talks about the background and what happened with the revelations. The first revelation and then the second revelation. He cannot back away from either of these being revelations and so he still continues to promote the idea and states it specifically that God inspired both the policy and its reversal. And yet President Nelson now comes up with a remarkable explanation for how that can be. And the explanation is this. God did the revelation in the first place for the policy But this policy caused so much grief, so much pain. And President Nelson talks about how he weeps with the children of God and the members of the church who are weeping over all the pain and the heartache that this policy has caused. And so because of that, because of that bill, he has for the past three and a half years been supplicating God to try and get God to change the policy because of all the harm it's doing. Obviously, God could not foresee the harm it would do. And so he's got to supplicate God to get him to change the policy. Finally, three and a half years later, God says, okay, you're right. I goofed the policy in the first place. Why don't you go ahead and reverse it? So here comes President Nelson to save the day. President Nelson is saving the church from God and getting God to reverse the policy that God instituted in the first place because this policy that God instituted Was a bad idea and caused untold amounts of grief and pain. So, not only does President Nelson get to still say that both the policy and its reversal were inspired of God, he gets to be the hero who comes in to save the church. And not just to save the church, Bill, but President Nelson gets to save the church from God. So, this is something I have never ever seen before, Bill, in the history of the LDS church, that now we have. A president and by the way this is what you get when you get a thoracic surgeon who becomes the president of the church surgeons are already known far and wide to have a God complex they already think they're God they have the power of life over death and we hear stories about that there was a movie made about it with William Hurd a number of years ago and even Doctor Strange the most recent movie uh, that I know about a doctor uh, he has this huge God complex right he's absolutely arrogant And then he has this horrible accident happen that humbles him and he becomes a superhero, blah, blah, blah. But President Nelson has this God complex. And this is what happens when you have a surgeon with a God complex who then becomes the prophet of the church, the prophet of the Lord. And what has happened here is that through this strange confluence of events, President Nelson has become a super prophet who is not only a prophet to the church, he is a prophet to God and he gets to correct God Almighty. President Nelson is not only the prophet of God, he is
1: the prophet to God. Your thoughts, Bill? I, I want to get into the audio here and and let the listeners kind of hear this for themselves, but I'm, I'm questioning now whether the policy's actually been reversed. I'm questioning now how somebody can paint both sides of this as a positive. Uh, I'm, I'm questioning now the reluctance on the part of the church and its leaders to actually address the questions that people are asking around this 2015 policy. Um, it, all of this seems so messy in terms of the harm that's been caused, even even to the extreme of young people taking their lives, children committing suicide. When I look at all that damage and harm to stand in front of a microphone and downplay that, and never ever talk about those directly, and and then to to kind of muddy your words by saying like, okay, we're not going to do that anymore, and then in this talk to kind of keep it going, I'm just I'm flabbergasted to be honest. I am uh, as an outsider now looking in as a as a non-Mormon, someone off the rolls, and looking back with with distance between me and the church, I'm flabbergasted. Uh, at what I can only deem to be several points of gaslighting in in President Nelson's talk. There's definite gaslighting. And the reason
0: I, I give this overview, first off, I want to say a couple things. First off, I tell other people what it is that I heard in the talk, and they go, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way that President Nelson actually said what you're saying he said, Radio Free Mormon. And then they go and listen to the talk, and they go, you've got to be kidding me. He actually did say what Radio Free Mormon was saying that he said. So that's one point, and we'll get to that audio so you can hear it for yourself. I invite everybody to listen to the full audio. What we have today is an abbreviated version of the address. The full talk takes about 24 minutes. There was an abbreviated version, with a highlights reel, so to speak, that was put up by Deseret News on YouTube. So we're going to go to that. That's only about seven or eight minutes long, and that will give us plenty of grist for our mill but we'll also be supplementing it from the transcript with other statements he made that may not have made it into the highlights reel where that is necessary the reason i take you to tell you what it is that he's saying in truth number 4 is because when you realize where this talk is going you can see that truth number 1 truth number 2 3 and then 5 are all carefully structured to lead up to and lay the foundation for truth number Which is the main point of his talk. So once you know where he's going, you can see exactly why it is that he's saying the things that he's saying both before and after. And that's why I wanted to give you that broad overview so that when we play the audio, I can point that out and try and comment on that and hopefully help you see what it is that I see. If you see something different, that's fine. I'm just one guy behind a microphone. I'm telling you the way I see it. I'm calling the shots. As I see them. But when I started listening to this address, I had no idea what this was going to be about. I honestly thought, is this going to be another instance where President Nelson or a general authority is making a big deal about giving a talk at BYU? And then they go up there and they say the same old thing that we've heard a million times before. And truth number one, that's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like we're just going to have the same old talk because truth number one is you are sons and daughters of God. But as we start looking at what he's saying and why he's saying it, That's when it becomes interesting and very clear. This is all carefully structured as a mea culpa that President Nelson is giving. But it's not a mea culpa for President Nelson. It's a mea culpa that President Nelson is giving for God. And that sound you hear while we're going through the talk, and especially truth number four, that sound you hear is President Nelson throwing God under the bus.
1: Yeah, and I I often wonder, just a real quick blip, yes, I absolutely agree with you that Uh, Point number four was written down in the middle of his piece of paper as he woke up in the middle of the night to take notes uh, and Wendy grabbed his pen for him. As he wrote in the middle of that paper, idea number four that we're going to have in this, in this section is the intentional topic is the intentional place he wants to go to. And I remember being younger in the church and thinking like all of these talks are just designed to teach me the gospel. And it now makes me second guess my own experience um, and, and want to go back and see how many church talks back when I had joined were also, also intentionally written to do something else other than that, something else that that tries to sway the, the people to not look at the internet, whatever it is. Um, I'm, I actually think this trick or this tool of writing a talk around a different point and then pretending like that's not the case, because he does that in this talk, by the way, Um I wonder how much that's gone on through the history of the church. But anyway, that, that's something for me to spend some time on after this. Right.
0: And we're going to get to the audio here in a second. I just want to say one other thing, maybe two. First thing is this. We can tell by the audience that he chooses to address who it is in the church that is having the most difficulty with this entire situation, and that is the young people of the church. General Conference is just a couple of weeks away, Bill. He could have given this talk at General Conference He chose not to. Instead, he made the strategic decision to give it to the young adults and to give it to the students at BYU and invite all the young adults to stop whatever they were doing and tune in because he wants them to hear this message. That tells me that it's the young people in the church who are having the most difficulty with this on-again, off-again revelation from God proclaimed by President Nelson.
1: I actually highly doubt that he will give anything like this... In general conference, um, as you point out, he picked a specific audience and often what they talk about off in the periphery with certain uh, local groups or with one particular segment of their membership, they often avoid those things at all cost at the six-month uh, semi-annual general conference.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And this is going to follow, I expect, the exact same pattern as what happened six months ago where they made the announcement about the reversal of the policy prior to General Conference. And then when General Conference rolled around, they didn't say one peep about it. I fully expect, as you predict, that that will be the same case here. He's making this announcement right before General Conference once again. And the final thing I'm going to say before we get to the audio, final thing I'm going to say is that if I had been counseling President Nelson about giving this talk, he comes to me and says, I've got this idea, I wanna give this talk, I wanna explain how it is that I really did receive revelation both times from God, both for the policy and for the reversal. I wanna explain it to everybody. I would say, leave it alone. You don't need to talk about this. It was six months ago now that reversal of the revelation, the reversal of the policy, just leave it alone. And I can't imagine that there were not people telling him the same thing, or the thought did not cross his mind, which once again tells me that at least from President Nelson's point of view, this was not something he could afford to leave alone. The pressure was so great that he was compelled to give this talk.
1: Yeah, again, I think a lot of people, when it first came out, uh, were questioned first its authenticity, and then in their own reconciling and wrestling inside their head, they quickly had to figure out ways in which in their mind to get behind the church leadership. Then three and a half years of damage and trauma and death ensued, and now it's reversed, or maybe, again, we'll get into that, um, but at least there's an attempt to take some of it away, and you have to imagine members of the church questioning now their own sanity as they as they tried to reconcile that on the front end. No, I hear you 100%, And
0: and when he gets to truth number five, and once again, we're gonna get to the audio really second, I know this is a bit of a long introduction, but believe me, this talk deserves it. There are depths within depths, in this talk. And when he gets to truth number five, we're going to find out that what he's trying to defend himself against is people, young people apparently predominantly, questioning his prophetic mantle and doubting his ability to receive revelation. And I think he'll make that clear in point number five, which we'll get to as we go along. Are you ready to go with truth number one from President Nelson? Let's do
2: it. I wish to discuss five truths that I feel impressed to share with you. Truth number one, you are sons and daughters of God. You already know this—you've sung about it ever since you were toddlers—but let me clarify a distinguishing characteristic about your identity. You are the children whom God chose to be part of His battalion during this great climax in the long-standing battle between good and evil, between truth and error.
0: Stop the tape. All right, so this is truth number one. You are sons and daughters of God. And this is why when I was originally listening to this talk live, I thought, well, this is just going to be the same old thing. And apparently he even recognizes that this might be perceived as being the same old thing because you have sung about it ever since you were toddlers and you already know this. Now, notice once again, President Nelson is getting very famous for his apocalyptic addresses. And by that, I mean, he is squarely positioning his presidency in the very last days. I mean, Jesus is coming right around the corner and he says it again here. You are the children whom God chose to be part of his battalion during this great climax in the long-standing battle between good and evil, between truth and error. So, It is go time. These are the days, and Jesus is coming right around the corner, so you better act busy, you better be good, and you better do what it is you're supposed to be doing. Part of what he said there was just a little bit longer than what was played in this tape that was put up on YouTube by Deseret News, which I want to quote here. He also says, I would not be surprised to learn that premortally, or in other words, in the premortal existence, that premortally, you loved the Lord so much that you promised now get this bill you promised to defend his name and gospel during this world's tumultuous winding up scenes so already we can see what he's doing if we know where he's going and what he's doing is saying these are the last days and i wouldn't be surprised to learn that you promised not only did you want to come down during these last days but you promised that you would come down here and you would defend the gospel and the lord's name by which, I take it he means, defend the church and the president of the church, who's the guy speaking to you. Your thoughts on that?
1: No, I think you're absolutely on here. The This first topic, this first uh, point of truth that we're all children of God is mundane within Mormonism. There, there's no argument from me with that even though maybe I don't believe that anymore, it's not a point of contention for me to sit and debate over what, what you're drawing attention to though, is he is beginning to this talk by implementing, um, almost a, a guilt trip or a, a rule and a consequence. And he's essentially telling the audience, look, as we get into some hard things here later in this talk, I am telling you, you've promised to be obedient. You've promised to be loyal. You've promised to stand with us. And, and so as I'm about ready to go through this conversation, let's start off there that I'm reminding you that you've got an obligation here uh, and you need to keep it. And, and I think this is something that the youth of the church, the youth of the world, to be honest, are having a struggle with right now. There is a lot of challenge to authority There's a lot of challenge right now in the world to, uh, just because the expert says so, I'm going to question it. And it seems like Nelson here in this talk is trying to get out in front of that. Right. He doesn't go to
0: your baptismal covenants. He doesn't go to anything else. He pushes it back to the pre-mortal realm and says, not only that I'm going to try and commit you to follow me, but this is something that you already promised to do before you got here, and you promised this to God. And you wouldn't want to be breaking your promise to God now, would you? Exactly. All right, we're ready for truth number
2: two. Here it comes. Truth number two. Truth is truth. Some things are simply true. (laughs) The arbiter of truth is God. Not your favorite social media news feed. Not Google. And certainly not those who are disaffected from the church.
1: All right. So in this section, truth number two is the uh, concept that God is the arbiter of truth. God is the person who establishes, lays out, defines, interprets, and it's not up to any of us. And he says, look, it's not up to the internet to decide what truth is. It's not up to Anybody in these other fields to determine truth necessarily, unless God has established it Himself, Uh, and it certainly isn't up to the critics of the church, those who are disaffected. Now, that sounds to a TBM, to somebody who's a uh, an Orthodox Mormon, that is a rally cry. Like there's, there is, yeah, like in that, it goes on inside uh, the head of a believer. Uh, There's excitement when the prophet says the rest of the world is wrong and we've got it. Um, But here's the trouble with that. If we set aside our emotion and we just look at the history of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in regards to its disagreement with those who are disaffected with the church, what we find is that those who are disaffected with the church were ahead of the church on essentially every single issue That the church has changed on. So if we look at race, we know that the disaffected members of the church and those who were calling into question the church's stance were ahead of the church on wanting equality for those of color. We see the same thing inside feminism. We see the same thing inside the sexism in the temple that was just released. We see the same thing with Sam Young and uh, protecting children and having interviews behind the scenes. We see the same thing with the LGBT issue where the critics of the church are calling for the church to make changes and the church is reluctant and standoffish. And eventually it starts to make the changes that the very people who were criticizing the church asked it to make. It seems at every point Where humans are involved and damage is being done, it is the disaffected of the church who are speaking out against the ground that the church holds. They seem to be right, and that is indicated by the fact that over time, while at first the church pushes those critics away and claims to know better than them, it eventually seems to move in the exact same direction, and eventually gets to the same place that the world does. And when you look at the disaffected members versus the church, you can sense that if you look at the church's stance on various issues, it has moved to the to the exact place, or at least in the direction of the things that its disaffected and its crit, disaffected members and its critics. Uh, have stated. Hence, while this may feel good, like a rally cry to believing members, the reality is that it is demonstrably false. Right. And so here he says, the arbiter of truth is God. And the
0: unstated part of that is, and I speak for God. And it's not your favorite social news feed that may be criticizing this policy and its reversal. It's not Google. And it's certainly not those who are disaffected from the church. He may as well have added Radio Free Mormon there. Don't listen to all those other people. Don't listen to anybody else who has anything that is doubtful or critical of what it is that I'm telling you. Just listen to me and you'll be fine because here is where the truth is and I'm going to lay it out for you here in the next several truths that I have in my talk. And as you can tell, these first couple of truths are very short, very to the point. He's laying the groundwork for truth number four. But before he gets there, he has to go to truth number three. So
2: let's play the tape on that. Truth number three. God loves every one of us with perfect love. More than anything, our father wants his children to choose to return home to him. Our Savior is the divine exemplar who marked the path that we are to follow. Because the Father and the Son love us with infinite, perfect love, and because they know we cannot see everything they see, they have given us laws that will guide and protect us. There is a strong connection between God's love And his laws. Okay,
0: truth number three that he wants to talk about is that God loves everybody with a perfect love. Now, that is pretty much uncontroversial, except for the fact that he feels the need to say it at the outset because the policy itself seemed to contravene that idea that really this was not given out of love at least it doesn't seem to be something that a loving god would give to the members of his one and only true church so he has to set this up at the outset interestingly he also says that we can't see everything that god and jesus christ see this idea that they have this perfect foreknowledge and yet he's going to be saying later that apparently god's foreknowledge was somewhat limited or somewhat off because apparently god could not see all the grief the harm and the trauma that would be inflicted when God directed his prophet to pass and implement the policy in November of 2015. But this is why he talks about God's perfect love. Later on, he's going to say that both the policy itself and the reversal of the policy three and a half years later, all of this was motivated by love. And when we get to that point, he's actually going to say, you know, it may not look like it, but actually, both of those things were motivated by love. Well, you know you're losing an argument when you have to say, it may not look like it. That's like when I have a client who's charged with a crime saying, hey, I know this looks bad, but... Yeah, as soon as you say, I know this looks bad, but you know that you are losing the argument. I know we haven't gotten to that point yet, but we will, and I want to prepare people for it when it comes up. Your
1: thoughts about this truth number three, Bill? Just the addendum that not only... Uh, is he establishing that God acts out of love. And the only reason, as you point out, is that the audience is doubting that this policy put in place in 2015 was done out of love. But what he's also doing is he's also saying, look, we, because he does this throughout the talk, especially towards the end, he says, look, we're his prophet and apostles. We are obligated to carry out God's purposes. Hence, we are acting out of love too. So not only can you not question God's motives, you also have no ability here to question their motives. And it ends up becoming
0: somewhat convoluted, somewhat unhealthy. And I think that's probably a nice word for it. When you say that God as a parent causes trauma on his children because he loves them. I mean, if we hear that in the workaday world that I live in, that you live in, that people, all of us read about in the newspapers or watch on the evening news. How many times have we heard a parent doing horrible things to their children and then justifying it by the love they had for the children? It seems as though every time that statement is made, social services are involved. Absolutely. This talk is a call for social services to get involved with God. And fortunately, the head of the social services department in the LDS church in this regard is going to be President Nelson. He's the one who's going to get called in to make things right and to get God to back off of showing this much love and this kind of love for his children.
1: Yeah, yeah, He it's, it's as if, as you point out there, kind of making the connection to my joke, uh, President Nelson acts as the social service worker going into the home, seeing the abuse of parent, and then coming out and siding with the parent. No, you're right. You're
0: right. These kids should be taken away. They should. Yeah, these children of God, yes, should be taken away. They should be taken away and put in foster care right now. But no, he's going to make things better. He's going to get God to back off. And he's going to take all the credit for it. All hail President Nelson. He's like Mighty Mouse in the cartoon. Here I am to save the day. Yeah, one of my favorite cartoons as a kid. Well, then you must love this talk. Yeah. You must love this president. (laughs) I I do. (laughs) Okay, so now we're ready to get to truth number four, the one that all this has been building up to and the one that's going to get the most length of time, the most explanation in this video clip from Deseret News that was put up on YouTube and from which we are playing. Are you ready to go? Oh, by the way, Bill. One other thing I did want to mention is that he also throws in the Satan scare card in truth number three. This wasn't part of the highlights reel, but he does say in that God knew that because of the adversary's deceptive tactics and traps, the covenant path would not be easy to find or to stay on. Now, we can't have a talk from President Nelson without his mentioning his favorite pet phrase, the covenant path. But notice also that he throws in there that God knew, because God has this great foreknowledge, right? Not enough to see the trauma the policy is going to cause, but enough to know that the adversary's deceptive tactics and traps will try and cause us to get off the covenant path. In other words, to become disaffected from the church. In other words, to start criticizing and doubting President Nelson's prophetic mantle. So, truth number four is going to be much longer, and so we're not going to play all of it before we break into common. I just want to give you that warning beforehand. But if you're ready to go with truth number four, now he couches this in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose church this is, appoints prophets and apostles to communicate his love and teach his laws. That's how he heads truth number four, and it's how he's going to introduce it, but it's under this heading that he's going to segue into the main part of his talk to explain why the policy and why the reversal.
2: Are you ready to play that? Yeah, here it is. Truth number four. The Lord Jesus Christ, whose church this is, appoints prophets and apostles to communicate his love and to teach his laws. Each of the Lord's apostles is in a position to observe and feel the love that Heavenly Father has for His children, particularly for those who are struggling. Sometimes we, as leaders of the Church, are criticized for holding firm to the laws of God, defending the Savior's doctrine, and resisting the social pressures of our day. But our commission as ordained apostles is to go into all the world to preach His gospel unto every creature. That means we are commanded to teach truth. In doing so, sometimes we are accused of being uncaring as we teach the Father's requirements for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. But wouldn't it be far more uncaring for us not to tell the truth? Not to teach what God has revealed. Thus, our commission as apostles is to teach nothing but truth. That commission does not give us the authority to modify divine law.
1: So, this idea of they will always teach the truth. um, There were other things that he said there in that soundbite that it's our that our job is to resist social pressures. Um, that, that the world is calling the church to move places and that the prophets and apostles, their responsibility is to resist those social pressures. He says we're obligated to teach truth. He then says later on, we're obligated to teach nothing but truth. Then he says it's worse to give you what you want. And then as you point out in the transcript, we will always teach the truth. Let's start with the social pressures. The church's job is to resist the social pressures. Guess what, church? You're doing a really piss poor job. Again, let's go back. The church originally used to teach that cremation was really bad and we shouldn't do it. The world, as cemeteries got um, filled up and space became uh, more precious uh, on those grounds, you saw a call for people to move from a standard burial to cremation. I know it seems like a small point, but guess what? Today, the church has moved uh, following that social pressure and really says nothing today out loud about um, what type of burial you should get. Uh, I think in the handbook, it still says that uh, cremation is uh, discouraged, but there is no counsel not to do it. And it also recognizes that certain countries it's legal uh, or illegal to do anything else. And that's the standard practice. Essentially the church has caved into social pressure. When we look at feminism, if we follow feminism uh, the church uh, has often been behind the times on that issue. There have even been instances where feminists have stood up in general conference and have uh, pleaded out loud for there to be change and to make statements that something was wrong. The church has little by little caved into pressure. We used to teach adamantly that a a woman's place is in the home. And we used to use lots of rhetoric that would shame and guilt women who worked outside the home. Um, Today, there is so much less of that. Almost none of it because the church has caved into social pressure when we look at the race issue when in the 1940s 50s and 60s the civil rights movement was amping up and many were calling on the church to change the church said we're not going to change we can't change until all of god's white children have been born and have received the priesthood and only maybe after that can something happen and then in 1978 the church said sorry we can't wait anymore We're on the wrong side of this, and it caved into social pressure. When we look at the church and its stance on marriage between a man and a woman, the church used to take certain hardline stances in terms of the legality of it in Utah, and in recent years, the church has caved into social pressure and has stood behind the state. Uh, allowing for same-sex marriage. Uh, The church was under social pressure to remove the sexism from the temple. Uh, It did that. The church has been under social pressure a hundred other times, and it has stood its ground originally and said, we're not going to cave in, only to cave in. So there's point number one with social pressure. The other one is teaching nothing but the truth. When we look at the church's statements on who are the Lamanites, how did Joseph Smith translate, what is the book of Abraham, uh, the Adam-God doctrine that Brigham Young encouraged so strongly early on in the church, uh, at every single point that garments can never change from the original design. The temple endowment can never change from its original design. Like uh, Cain is Bigfoot, Um, playing cards bring in the spirit of the devil, Uh, whatever state It is that the church has said over the last 200 years. So many of those statements today, the church itself has either turned 180 on or drastically enough away from those teachings to show that those teachings weren't accurate or the or the statement that they're making, the truth they propose is deeply problematic, if not falsifiable. Hence, the church has not done a great job. It's actually done a piss-poor job of teaching truth. Both of these statements, although he wants to set up what he's about to say, both of those statements, that their job is to resist social pressures, they're not doing very good at it, and two, that they teach nothing but the truth, that's false. Right, I think those are excellent points. Also about the social pressures, it's fascinating
0: to me that he says That their job as leaders is to resist social pressures of our day. And he's giving it in the context of a talk that talks about how it was that they did not resist the social pressures to reverse the policy. The social pressures that he will identify is all the pain and trauma and grief it was inflicting on members of the church.
1: Isn't that what all social pressure is? All social pressure is a segment of our society saying, you're hurting us. You're doing damage. Will you please change this? You're exactly right, RFM, that the whole point here of him saying our job's to resist social pressure. And now he's about to tell you how he caved into social pressure.
0: Yeah. So I find it fascinating that he will say this in the very talk in which he's admitting that they caved to social pressure. So he also says, sometimes we are accused of being uncaring. Okay? This is suggestive. It's statements like these in his talk that help us understand what's going on behind the scenes. People are accusing him of being uncaring, of not loving members of the church by instituting the policy, right, in the first place. And he says, sometimes we're accused of uncaring, but you can't blame us because all we're doing is teaching you the truth that God gave us to teach. So therefore, if you've got a problem, don't look at us, we're just the messenger. God's the one to blame. Once again, throwing God under the bus. And he also follows that up by saying, prophets are rarely popular, why? Because we're just teaching the truth that God gave us, but we will always teach the truth, exclamation point. And in the transcript, the always is emphasized, it's in italics, and there is an exclamation point after the truth. We will always teach the truth. I think you've already done a good job addressing that. And then he finally says, that commission, the commission that we have to teach nothing but the truth, that commission does not give us the authority to modify divine law. Now pay attention to that because later on he's going to talk about how actually they did modify divine law and actually violated divine law and revelation. That'll be an interesting side note as we go further. Are you ready to continue? Let's do it. Okay, because the gaslighting is going to start coming fast and furious now as we proceed further roll the tape
2: for example let's consider the definition of marriage in recent years many countries including the united states have legalized same-sex marriage as members of the church we respect the laws of the land and abide by them including civil marriage the truth is however that in the beginning In the beginning marriage was ordained by God, and to this day it is defined by Him as being between a man and a woman. God has not changed His definition of marriage. Though we of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles cannot change the laws of God. We do have the charge to build up the church and regulate all the affairs of the same in all nations. Thus, we can adjust policy when the Lord directs us to do so.
0: Once again, this highlight section on the internet omits a very important paragraph. In the middle of what it was that was just quoted, President Nelson also says this, God has also not changed his law of chastity. Requirements to enter the temple have not changed. Yes, he actually says that. Requirements to enter the temple have not changed. Did you have some comments you wanted to make about that, Bill?
1: First, let me just say, like, they sure as hell have changed. The Word of Wisdom... Is is, There have been times in our history where that was not part of the requirements to go into the temple. You could have chewing tobacco, you could smoke cigarettes, you could drink six cups of coffee a day, and you could go to the house of the Lord. There have been times in our history where paying tithing was not prerequisite to getting a temple recommend. You could pay nothing, you could pay a little, you could pay a full tithing, and you could still go. To say that the requirements to enter the temple have not changed, that's completely not true. Those are the two, like the ones, uh, significant ones that stand out to me as things that have absolutely changed. My guess is if you go into some of the others, those have changed to some extent too. Leadership's requirement for firm belief versus just hoping, that's something that has shifted over the last decade or so. These temporal requirements absolutely have changed. To say they haven't, it seems blatant, like if anybody knows that these things have changed, it's this guy who's been in the church for the last hundred years. Right, and that's why they call it gaslighting. Now, gaslighting frequently
0: is used somewhat incorrectly to refer to like any kind of misstatement or lie a person tells, but really gaslighting has to do with talking about history in a way that the history was not, to try and get you to think that history happened in a different way than it really did sort of to rewrite history. And this is an example of it when he says requirements to enter the temple have not changed, as you pointed out. One other rather obvious example that I'll add to your list is that it used to be a requirement to go to the temple that you not have
1: any African blood. Yeah, that's another significant one, right? So the prerequisites for the temple have changed. Here's the prophet of the church who's saying that I can't imagine there being a more blatant uh, moment of dishonesty. Like, if I were to sit and say, are you serious? If I was standing next to him, President Nelson, are you serious that, that the, the standards to enter the temple have not changed? And then to ask him about the three that we just named that are blatant. And, and I don't think there's any other choice than for him at that point to admit that he's not telling the truth.
0: Well, I think that's probably true, but you know and I know that you will never get that chance because these leaders of the church are not open to follow-up questions. No, no, and if
1: they do get a follow-up question,
0: they just change it. Yeah, and by the way, another example happens right before that, which was in the clip that you played. This is called gaslighting. Not quite as egregious, pretty close when he talks about The definition of marriage, God's definition of marriage. And he frames it in such a way as to say that basically from the beginning, i.e. Adam and Eve, the definition of marriage was a man and a woman, and that has continued up to the present day. Let me go ahead and read that again as he said it. The truth is, however, that in the beginning, in the beginning, he repeats it, in the beginning, marriage was ordained by God. And to this day, which is giving the implication he's talking about in continuous succession since the very beginning to this day. And to this day, it is defined by him as being between a man and a woman. God has not changed his definition of marriage. And when he said this, I scratched my head and I said, you're the president of what church? Because I thought you were the president of the LDS church. But maybe I'm getting confused here because I think the LDS church teaches that God had a very different definition of marriage for quite some period of time in the LDS church than between a man and a woman. When you look
1: at the theology of polygamy, it becomes crystal clear that the way we, as Latter-day Saints, have framed it is that this is the way the Lord will do things, and unless the Lord commands otherwise, this is how we shall do them. This is, if I'm not mistaken, Jacob in the Book of Mormon. And we reference that as one of the supporting the ideas behind us performing or practicing polygamy. That idea points to the necessity of us comprehending that President Nelson is wrong here. Like, in other words, when President Nelson says that we've always held to one definition of marriage, one man and one woman, I fully understand that the apologist would come in and the apologist would say, look, even in a polygamous relationship, those women are not married to each other. Those women each individually are married to that man. That man has a one man and one woman marriage with each of those women. And that's the way apologists try to defend it. But that's not the approach the church has taken. What the church has done is said that uh, monogamy is the standard, except when the Lord commands otherwise. Now, if the Lord is commanding otherwise, we are doing something other than the thing that was the standard. And so when President Nelson says, we've always practiced this standard, that's not what God inside Mormonism has said. God himself admits that we have more than one standard of marriage. We practice that one standard unless the Lord commands otherwise. And when he commands otherwise, we practice that other standard of marriage. Right. And so it's
0: like he's sort of warming up here, his gaslighting muscles. He's already getting into shape because he's going to proceed to gaslight further when he talks about the policy itself from November of 2015. By the way, only making this more remarkable is that President Nelson is actually saying this about marriage and God's definition when he is standing in front of the audience and he just got up from sitting next to Wendy, who is his second plural wife. He is a polygamist in a spiritual sense he is married to two women for time and all eternity and yet he's coming up here and using language that suggests to his audience and intentionally i am sure that from the beginning this was the definition and to this day it is defined by god as being between a man and a woman and god has not changed his definition
1: of marriage i i just want to add yes Again, I can't argue with the beginning part of it. I may disagree with belief, but I don't have, uh, neither one of us have enough data to go on to sit and say who's right or who's wrong. So if he wants to establish that from the beginning, Adam and Eve, man and woman, that's how marriage was, that's all it was, that's fine. The trouble is what he does from there by saying, look, Abraham was also just practicing that one man and that one woman. Isaac and Jacob, just the one man and the one woman. Um, And then the rest of us in Mormonism, Joseph Smith Jr., one man and one woman. Uh, Brigham Young, one man and one woman. Uh, As we move forward all the way through Joseph F. Smith, uh, one man and one woman. And the reality is the church and its scriptural canon both establish clearly that God has authorized something other than that standard and the church has moved at various times to that standard. Right, and I'll
0: just add here parenthetically that I think he feels compelled to say this because he doesn't want to open the Pandora's box. He's got enough problems he's dealing with already, but he doesn't want to open that Pandora's box because it is very difficult to maintain the position of enforcing one man, one woman marriage and being against homosexual marriage which is a different kind, an unorthodox kind of marriage, when in our very history, the LDS Church has taught an extremely unorthodox version of marriage, which then leaves it open to the criticism of, well, why are you opposed to one kind of unorthodox marriage when you have taught earlier in your history, and are practicing it right now, President Nelson, by the way, that God has commanded a separate kind of unorthodox
1: marriage. And you would think... If if I were to lay out the early history of various churches, and I said, like, tell me which church is really set up to be an advocate for same-sex marriage, you would I would say based on the history, it would be Mormonism, and here's why. They were already persecuted for practicing a different standard. They were already picked on and kicked out. Of home to home to home for practicing this different standard. If anybody knows what it's like to be marginalized, criticized, um, and, and traumatized for practicing a different standard of marriage, it should be the Mormons. And here we are on the wrong side of the issue. And let me establish it. I'll show myself to be more accurate than president Nelson. And I don't know how much time it'll take, but mark my words at some point, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will be in favor of allow and be comfortable with same-sex marriage. Now, President Nelson seems to be saying the exact opposite of that. There is a standard and we have no choice but to follow it till the end of time. And we shall see, and I and I'm willing to bet it probably comes after my last breath. But we shall see who is a greater prophet seer and revelator.
0: <laughs>
1: my money's on you bill. Yeah, so is mine. So now let's go ahead and play
0: through the rest of truth number four. Now, I've set this up prior to this, so you can see what it is that he's saying, that both of these were uh, instituted by God, the policy and its reversal, and that it was President Nelson, who saw all the grief, all the problems, all the trauma this was causing, who supplicated the Lord, that's his word, he uses it several times in the original address, supplicating the Lord over a prolonged period of time to try and get the Lord to back off, change his mind, recognize that his policy, God's policy, was a bad idea in the first place, and he was eventually successful in getting God to change his mind. The other thing that you'll see in this, if it's in this audio, is that he couches this in such a funny way because this is the whole point of his talk. And yet, he's talking about it as if this is just sort of an example. He says, perhaps I can illustrate this through policy adjustments regarding those who identify themselves as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. He says, perhaps I can illustrate. And later on, he says, consider the policy announced in November of 2015. It's like he's using this as an example to illustrate his main point. But really, the example is the main point. This is the whole point
1: he's trying to make. So it's just funny the way he couches it to me. Yeah. And before we get to it, I'll just reiterate that. When you use the word perhaps, it's generally used in two ways. One is that you're suggesting that what you're going to say is coming from off the cuff. It is something you did not prepare and you are spontaneously thinking about it and going like, hey, perhaps this would be a good thing to throw in. The second is is that we often use the word perhaps as kind of a snarky way to say like, hey, maybe you hadn't considered this other idea and to say it with a sense of sarcasm. Um, I don't think the second is useful. Uh, I don't think that's the motive. The only option I feel like I'm left with based on the meaning of perhaps and how most speakers use that word is that he's almost wanting you to feel like this is a secondary thing that was brought in after the fact, like you point out, it's an example after the fact to support what he's saying, but it also, I think, is the is the he's showing his cards here that this is actually the central point of his talk.
0: Yes, I agree. And when you see the whole structure, it becomes evident. I think it's evident to everybody who's listened to it that this was the main point of the talk. Are you ready to play this audio, Bill? This is the best part.
1: Here it is. Roll the tape.
2: You have recently seen such examples. Because the restoration is ongoing, policy changes will likely and surely continue. Consider the policy announced in November 2015 related to the advisability of baptism for children of LGBT parents. Our concern then, and one which we discussed at length and prayed about fervently over a long period of time, was to find a way to reduce friction between gay or lesbian parents and their children. Because parents are the primary exemplars for their children, we did not want to put young children in the position of having to choose between beliefs and behavior that they learned at home and what they were taught at church. The First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve have con- continued to seek the Lord's guidance and to plead with Him in behalf of His children who were affected by the 2015 policy. We knew that this policy created concern and confusion for some and heartache for others. That grieved us. Whenever the sons and daughters of God weep, for whatever reason, we weep. So our supplications to the Lord continued. As a result of our continued supplication, we recently felt directed to adjust the policy such that the baptism of children of LGBT parents may be authorized by bishops without First Presidency approval if the custodial parents requested the baptism and understand that a child will be taught about sacred covenants to be made at baptism. Though it may not have looked this way to some, the 2015 and 2019 policy adjustments on this matter were both motivated by love—the love of our Heavenly Father for His children and the love of the brethren for those whom we serve. Because we feel the depth of God's love for His children We care deeply about every child of God, regardless of age, personal circumstances, gender, sexual orientation, or other unique challenges.
1: All right, let me try... The the trouble here is this is so convoluted. To the audience that's listening, there seems to be this rhetoric of wanting to say, look, we can change policy, we can't change doctrine. And yet... They want to put God as the author of both changes. In other words, it seems as though the church wants to have it both ways. They want to be able to say, look, doctrine is unchangeable, but us, us apostles and prophet, we, we can make changes to policy. We can do that. We have the ability and the power to do that. Um, and, and then, they, but he also wants to say, like, but I also, but we also have to have God do that, not us do that. God has to do it, and then we're just carrying out His direction. And and so, in this thing that's happening in this talk, He's essentially saying uh, we had concerns about the the children of gay parents and how they would feel and be treated if they proceeded through the church. So we went to God and we asked him about this and God told us to do this policy in 2015 that was exclusionary to the children of gay parents, as well as change the kinds of treatment that we give to the gay parents themselves, such as mandatory disciplinary counsel with an inevitable conclusion of excommunication. And then they want to say, but then three and a half years later, we, over that three and a half years, we were aware, us prophets and apostles, we were aware. We knew it caused hurt and harm. So we pled with God to do something about it. And then God comes in and says, okay, you're right. This is causing some damage. Not sure why I did that in the first place. I should have I should have saw what was going on, but I was paying too much attention to 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 the problems with our young members drinking coffee and tea that I just didn't see it as a priority. Like whatever the reasoning is, Nelson is putting on God the Father the air of getting the policy wrong, not having it tweaked to a point where it was safe and healthy and helpful. To the members of the church. Instead, they saw it. God seemingly didn't. And over in a three and a half year span, they pled with God, God, you've got to see this. You're hurting people. God, you have to recognize this isn't good for people. God, could you please, God, could you please change? And three and a half years later, God, after multiple, mul- like, like I'm not talking five or seven or 25 or 50, like, like dozens and dozens and dozens of suicides. God the Father, after three and a half years, finally caves in and gives to these men what they had seen it seemingly the whole time. God, uh, as you point out, is the bumpity bump you hear from President Nelson, as you pointed out, throwing him under the bus. Right, so let me follow up with a couple of things you said.
0: When he says that there's a difference between doctrine and policy. Doctrine never changes. We can't change that. Only God is the arbiter of truth. He sets truth, but policy can be changed. And yet he does say that policy is only changed when God directs the policy to be changed. So he puts God behind the policies and the policy changes as well. That's when he says at the end of the part we just played, thus we can adjust policy when the Lord directs us to do so. So God is behind all of this, both the policy initially and the policy change, according to President Nelson. As you said, I just wanted to anchor that within words he was saying, that concept that you were talking about. That is indeed what he's saying. And then he says, Consider the policy announced. Now, this gets back to the gaslighting. This is one paragraph. Let me break it down. Consider the policy announced in November 2015 related to the advisability of baptism for the children of LGBT parents, period. There's two bits of gaslighting in that. First off, this policy was never announced. It was leaked, okay? The church did not come out and announce this policy like they would have if it was something that they thought was good, something that they'd get credit for, something they were proud of doing. No, they snuck it into the handbook of the leaders by the dark of night. This policy was not announced. He does not get to get away with gaslighting me on this and rewriting history. He says, consider the policy announced in November 2015 related to the advisability of baptism for the children of LGBT parents, okay? This is the second part of gaslighting. That's This policy was not announced and it had nothing to do with the advisability of baptizing kids, okay? It didn't say whether it was advisable or not. It gave a blanket prohibition against baptizing the children of LGBT parents unless that child had reached the age of 18, had moved out of the house, had renounced the lifestyle, and received first presidency approval to be baptized. So he's trying to soften this up. He's trying to rewrite history. He's trying to gaslight me and his audience about what it was that actually happened. And I wanted to bring that up. Then he says, our concern then, and when we discussed at length and prayed about fervently over a long period of time, okay, he has to link back to what he said in January of 2016. He knows that's on the record. He know he can't get away from that. So he has to repeat it here about he and the apostles prayed fervently about and discussed and considered, remember, as he said in January of 2016, considering all the countless permutations and possible scenarios that could arise when they were cobbling this policy together. So they did this over a long period of time. One thing I've got to say about that, he has, in other statements, linked the policy to the Supreme Court decision legalizing gay marriage in the United States. In fact, it was in January of 2016 that he said, consequent to the Supreme Court's decision legalizing gay marriage. That's what kicked off all of this discussion, all of this fervent prayer that happened over a long period of time. The thing I want to bring up is that that decision by the Supreme Court came out on June 26th of 2015. This policy was leaked November 5th of that year. That's just a little over four months later, okay? So when he says, we did this over a long period of time, we prayed at length, we we kept meeting in the temple, we were discussing and praying about it, whatever he is trying to imply by a long period of time, we know that it is no longer than between June 26th when the Supreme Court decision was issued that kicked off all this discussion and the date it was implemented and leaked in November 5th of 2015, about four months maybe and a couple weeks after that. He then goes on to say, what we were praying about was to find a way to reduce friction between gay or lesbian parents and their children. This is the whole reason that they implemented the policy in the first place. Now, here's the deal, Bill. That's not true. This is a ruse. This is a facade. This is an excuse that they came up with to try and explain away why it was that they really did it. And I'm I'm reticent to try and actually say he's, he's not telling the truth intentionally, but I honestly and sadly think that's the case. I mean, I'm a criminal defense attorney. I have some clients who are innocent. I have others who are not innocent. And I have some clients who are so bad at trying to proclaim their innocence when it's so obvious they're guilty, I have actually had to tell them, look, I don't believe you and you're paying me to believe you. That's the way I feel about what President Nelson is saying here. You know, I don't believe you and I wouldn't believe you if you were paying me to believe you because it's so obviously not true. They were not looking for a way to reduce friction between gay or lesbian parents and their children. Let me tell you two reasons why I am fully convinced that that is the case. First off, friction between children who are Mormons and gay or lesbian parents did not start with the Supreme Court decision legalizing gay marriage. For years and years and years and decades prior to this, there were members of the church, most of them were men, I think, a lot of women too, but mostly men who were closeted homosexuals who married a woman at the advice of their bishop, at the encouragement of leaders of the church, and they try to stay closeted, Try to make it work, Try to make it work, Try to make it work. They have kids and finally they can't stand it anymore. They break out, they come out of the closet, they say, hey, I can't do this anymore. I'm living a lie. We, we need to get divorced and I need to go and live my own lifestyle. This has been happening for a long time, Bill. This didn't just start in June of 2015. And when that happens, there's a divorce, there's custody that's ordered by the court, and the father either gets primary custody or at at least he gets substantial visitation with the child, right? So the fact that a child has been living with a gay parent has been going on a long time prior to this decision and a long time prior to their decision, oh, we need to reduce friction between gay or lesbian parents and their children. All right, so that's a pretext. The other thing about this that I find disingenuous on his part is that there has been a whole lot of friction going on between Mormon kids and their parents for issues other than homosexuality for as long as the church has been in existence, and the church has never seen fit to pass a policy to reduce that friction. Can I give you just two examples from my own life, all right? Awesome. First off, theoretical example, okay? What if your mom's a Mormon and your dad is a Southern Baptist or vice versa? What if your mom's a Southern Baptist and your dad's a Mormon and you're a kid? I guarantee you there's going to be a lot more friction in that household over the subject of religion and Mormonism than it would be if one of your parents was gay. And yet the first presidency never saw that it was important enough to pass some kind of policy to reduce that friction. And they could have, they could have said, well, look, no kid's going to get baptized unless both the parents are Mormon. We're only gonna baptize full
1: Mormon families, not just one Mormon, into a non Mormon family. And and to add on top of that, when you're eighteen, you can come back and you can ask for those ordinances, but you're gonna to have to disavow your non Mormon parents' religion. Yes.
0: And how many and how many kids have been kicked out of their household because they joined the Mormon church? I know people like that. You know people like that. We all know that uh, I was. Like that.
1: You you were. Was that friction? Uh, Yeah, my mom and I had a tense relationship until my first kid was born. My mom kicked me out of my house while I was in college because I had joined Mormonism. Okay, so look, there has been friction going on. And
0: by the way, my other two examples of friction in my household don't even come close to what you experience. So I don't even want to talk about those. That is the classic example of friction in households over religion because one child is a Mormon and a parent is not. And yet the church never saw it fit to pass a policy to reduce that friction my goodness President Hinckley even gave a talk remember I think it was he was visiting China or someplace in Asia and there was some kid who had joined the church and been kicked out by his family remember and he tells the story to President Hinckley and President Hinckley relates it to the audience and President Hinckley says well why on earth would you go through all that and the kid looks at him and says well it's true isn't it do you remember that talk yeah yeah I do so, leaders of the church are aware of this friction that's been caused for ages over religion because children are Mormons, they join the church, and yet they have never passed any kind of policy or apparently even thought of passing any kind of policy in order to reduce that friction. It's only when the United States Supreme Court legalizes gay marriage that now all of a sudden, oh, the apostles, the leaders are so concerned about reducing this friction. That's not true. It's just not true. It doesn't wash, it doesn't hold water. And so, like I say, I'm kind of reluctant to say that only in the most obvious cases to me and other people may disagree, but I've given my reasons for why it is that I think that's not true. And so there you have it. You can take it or leave it. You can make your own decision. But I believe that President Nelson is actually consciously saying things that he knows are not true in order to try and give himself cover. And the cover that he's trying to give himself is, is that when they passed the policy in the first place, they were acting out of. Love, And he says that throughout the talk. We're acting out of love. God's acting out of love. Everybody's acting out of love. But unfortunately, even taking what he says is true, our intent and our goal to reduce friction in the household by passing this policy ended up blowing up and causing a lot more friction and a lot more difficulties and a lot more grief than we anticipated. So we had to go back to God and get him to change it. If
1: we do something, if, if as a leadership in the church, if a decision is made to implement procedures, policies, directions, and that causes harm and trauma um, to the point where there is an uproar that's loud enough to then cause them to question it. Somebody has to take the blame for that. Somebody has to be responsible for not seeing, and I'll use their words, all the permutations of this policy. That was their wording that they had sat down and talked about all the permutations. By the way, I want to note you had just done an episode on Elder Stephen Snow, church historian, who's going to be released in this general conference. What he said to the Salt Lake Tribune was that he didn't like this policy when it first happened. And and yet here's Nelson saying like no no no, it was it was from God. Uh, it was out of love. Uh, that's our motives. That was his motives. But again, they got it wrong. Somebody has to take the fall for that. When he says that both the creation of this policy and the adjustment of it, and then now again, there's somewhat arguing for the retraction of it, that those things are motivated by love, one. One and two, that all policy implementations, adjustments, and retractions are are done uh, under God's supervision and approval, at the end of the day, we have no choice. They are giving us no choice, but not to blame them separately from God, but to blame God and to excuse them for simply... Um, Taking God's direction and implementing it, even though it ended up doing uh, significant harm and trauma. Here's the trouble with that. If we look at Mormonism's history again, I'll just give a couple of examples the Adam God theory. If we're going to argue that God did tell Brigham Young to teach the Adam-God theory, which is demonstrably true. We have numerous quotes, by the way. This isn't just one quote in the Journal of Discourses that's misunderstood. So if there's any um, Orthodox members out there listening, I would challenge you to go look up all the quotes from Brigham Young, President Young, as well as the prophets who immediately followed him on the Adam-God doctrine if you're going to accept that what President Nelson is saying, which is that all implementation of policies in retraction and adjustments of policies comes from God, and and, and then thereby also all doctrines being eternal truths are also then given by God, then we must recognize that it must be God then who gave uh, President Young False doctrine that the church later disavowed, retracted, moved away from, and said wasn't true. So, when you sense that Mormonism changes on every jot and tittle of its theology, and that President Nelson requires us to give the credit or the blame, however way you see it, to God for all of that, all of a sudden that becomes deeply problematic. Uh, to the point he's trying to make. Uh, Spencer W. Kimball, I believe in 1978, issued a letter from the First Presidency telling stake presidents and bishops to inquire during interviews about oral sex. About a month and a half later, two months later, it wasn't very much time, just a few months later, that letter was, another letter was sent out that retracted the guidance in that letter. So again, noting that when the church oversteps its bounds, causes trauma to the community in such a way that the Orthodox members are beginning to get louder and louder, the church then retracts those things, and we're left to blame God for both the implementation and the retraction. And I'll finish with the last one, which I think is always the strongest example in these conversations, which is the race doctrine. We are left to believe And the church still wants us to believe this. Elder Oaks did this in the uh, celebration of the 1978 revelation, which just happened. The B1 celebration uh, that just recently occurred, you have uh, Elder Oaks essentially saying that both the uh, implementation that blacks were not able to have the priesthood, and then the retraction of that and the allowing of them into full fellowship was by God. And then you also have to deal with the fact that the church leaders said lots of things about why that retraction was in place, and they named those things doctrines. And so the creation of that false belief that the church now disavows, and the retraction of that false belief, if we take President Nelson at his words, also came from God, which means God was responsible for spreading rumors about the false reasons why those folks couldn't fully participate, and God was responsible for finally squashing those rumors, and that just seems absurd and nonsensical.
0: I think it's certainly in contradiction to the God that the Mormons teach about who has infinite love and infinite foreknowledge.
1: Yeah, this God this God is no fortune
0: teller. Uh, No, he's not. And so here, before we pass on from truth number four, (laughs) I'll put truth in quotation marks here. Truth number four. uh, I just want to highlight that part that was played because he says, President Nelson says, this all came out of love. God loves his children. We love his children. This is why this policy came this way. That's why it sounds so funny when he says, though it may not have looked this way to some... i.e. the people I'm talking to, the ones who doubt my prophetic mantle over this whole episode, though it may not have looked this way to some, the 2015 and 2019 policy adjustments on this matter were both motivated by love. Now, we played that part in the audio clip. There are a couple of paragraphs that were not played in this audio clip. Once again, go back to the original uh, talk to listen to it in its entirety, but I want to focus on these because according to President Nelson, There's more gaslighting, I think, going on, or something that I have a huge question mark next to, because what he's saying is that in the three and a half years between the policy and its reversal, there were parents who were petitioning the first presidency to have their children baptized, i.e. age eight children baptized, and that in most of these cases, the first presidency granted those exceptions. Now, I was shocked to hear this, and I think you'll be shocked to hear me read it, that this is the case. Because the original policy, remember this is why I mentioned this before, the original policy did not even allow for such exceptions. There were no exceptions to this policy. The only exception to the policy was once the kid had reached the age of 18. That was an absolute, ironclad, written-in-stone requirement for any child of an LGBTQ parent to have baptism. They could not be baptized at age 8. Period, end of story. And yet now they're talking, President Nelson's talking about people petitioning to have their kids baptized and the first presidency granting it. This is amazing to me because I have no idea why these parents would think they could even petition the first presidency when the policy says, no, 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 you can't do it until they're age 18. And then I'm shocked that the first presidency is granting these petitions. He says, most of them we granted. Why is the First Presidency granting petitions to baptize kids who are eight years old when that is in direct violation of the policy that they announced, excuse me, that was leaked in November 2015 and which they said came from God? They are putting themselves in the position of violating God's own revelation. They are rogue. They're the ones who don't have to do what it is God says. They can go behind God's back, I guess and allow kids to be baptized here's what he says okay in case you think i'm making this up he says thus in 2015 the policy was made to assist children and their parents in this circumstance namely that children being raised by lgbt parents would not automatically be eligible for baptism at age eight that's gaslighting it's not that they were not automatically eligible for baptism at age eight it's that they were not eligible period for baptism at age eight. And then he says, exceptions to this policy would require first presidency approval. That's not true. There was nothing in the policy that says that any exception to that policy could be granted by first presidency approval. The only mention of first presidency approval was once the kid had reached the age of 18, had moved out of the household, and had renounced the lifestyle of the offending parent. Only then could that child be baptized if they got first presidency approval when they're not really a child anymore. They're 18 years old. He goes on to say this in his address. We also took note of LGBT parents who sought permission from the first presidency for their children to be baptized. In nearly every case where the LGBT parents agreed to teach their children about and be supportive of the covenant of baptism, the requested exception was granted. What are they talking about? What is President Nelson talking about here, Bill? He's talking about granting exceptions that are not allowed by the policy, that are actually in violation of the policy, but it's okay for the first presidency to do this. Why? It just seems that President Nelson more than once is putting himself above God. God institutes the policy, it's a wreck. So, President Nelson comes in, he white knights himself, and he comes in riding on his charger and he gets God to reverse the policy. And even while this policy is in effect, President Nelson is going against the policy in violation of the revelation he claims has come from God to allow exceptions to the policy and let children of LGBT parents, eight years old, be baptized as an exception to the policy, even when the policy itself does not allow for such an exception. To be made, your thoughts, Bill.
1: Yeah, so I think this even gets uh, more unhealthy, and here's why. So let me start by saying that you're right. The handbook made no space for for a local leader or an affected member to even recognize that they could appeal to the first presidency. There is no room for an exception. There is a policy that seems very rigid and very pointed at how this works with no space for exceptions given. So, in most cases where this happens first, the member just goes like, oh, that's the way it is. So as hurtful and traumatizing as that uh, policy is in terms of how it affects me, there's nothing I can do about it. Now, for the very few members, who feel inclined to try and take it on their own to the next step, they would sit down with a local leader, a bishop, maybe even a stake president. They would have a conversation about, I know this is the rule, but we would like some conversation to occur where we ask for an an exception. At that point, the majority of local bishops and stake presidents are going to squash it right there. There is no room for an exception. I'm looking right here at the handbook. There's no room for an exception. Now, what you are essentially doing is you're acknowledging that there is a system that benefits a select few who both have the wherewithal and courage to push anyway And are lucky enough to be in a ward or stake where a local leader also is uh, inclined and encouraged to push this thing up. And you specifically benefit the very few select members who know somebody who's higher up and can essentially have access to their ear to make this request. Now, this isn't the only time in the church that this happens. Let me give another example. We have a hard and fast rule that men in the church can be sealed to multiple women. The rule in the church, though, is explicit in our theology and in our handbook, is that a woman can only be sealed to one man. She can then, if her husband dies, she can go back to the temple and she can be married for time only, but she cannot have access to a second sealing to a second man. But the church does grant a few exceptions to this, by the way, and lets and allows some women to go to the temple and be sealed a second time. They encourage those couples to not discuss it. It is not to be discussed because they don't want the general membership knowing that this exception happens. Now, that benefits, again, that kind of uh, operation benefits a select few who have access to the ears of top leadership and can get the exceptions to that. Most members don't even know the exception exists. So they operate completely not even thinking they have can do such a thing. And even if they did think like, oh, I've heard that maybe I'll make an appeal. Then you have to have a bishop or a stake president who's also willing to move that up. This system is not fair And it is deeply traumatizing to a large chunk of people while essentially privileging an elite group.
0: Oh, absolutely. You're right. And I think that you're exactly right that no bishop is going to move this up the chain. No state president is going to move this up the chain because they're going to look at the policy. And the policy says, black and white, you got to be 18 first. No exceptions. Sorry, come back when your kid is 18. So what this leads me to believe is that the people who were able to do this are people who were connected, Bill. They were either connected to the leadership of the church or they, they were connected to people who were connected to leaders of the church. And so they were able to move this in front of leaders of the church and get the exception. Now, I'm putting myself in the position for a second of somebody who is gay, lesbian, whatever, whose child cannot be baptized at age eight, okay? And because of this policy, which is black and white, they accept it because that's what it says. The kid is now, what, three and a half years beyond that before the policy is reversed or whatever. The kid has had to go through the trauma, this grief that President Nelson is speaking of, and all the tears that are being shed because of this. And now, if I'm that parent and I hear President Nelson talking about certain unnamed members who have come to them, the first presidency, and gotten exceptions to this policy for their kids to be baptized? And I didn't because the policy itself says I can't. I mean, how do I feel at that point? I think I feel, as you are suggesting, I feel disenfranchised from the entire system. It's two-tiered. Those with connections can get access and can get an exception to this policy, which is in violation of the policy as it's written and presumably as given by God. At least that's what President Nelson said.
1: And and an exception that the general membership doesn't even know is accessible
0: right this is really a bad system number one he's granting exceptions that are in violation of the policy which means in violation of the revealed will of God during the time that this policy is in place number two it's granted only to people who have access to the first presidency and the vast majority of people don't even know that there is an exception that could possibly be granted, and so don't ask for it. So now he is disenfranchising, and I think in some instances, he's got to be re-traumatizing these parents who did not ask for an exception because according to the policy, it wasn't even allowed.
1: Yeah, and I want to add an even darker part of this, which I, I think most people missed when they heard this or heard the conversation surrounding it. Would you read again the quote, about the approval moving from the first presidency to bishops.
0: Yes, that's here in this section as well. We also determined, this is as part of the reversal of the policy. It's right after the part where it says, as a result of our continued supplication, we recently felt directed to adjust the policy such that the baptism of children of LGBT parents may be authorized by bishops without
1: first presidency approval. Is that the part you were looking for, Bill? That's the part I was looking for, and I think this is a bombshell. And and here's what I mean. The policy hasn't been reversed. The policy hasn't been retracted. What they're telling you here is the policy is still in place. But rather than having to, one, not know there's room for an exception, or two, knowing there's room for an exception and taking it to the first presidency, we're now allowing the bishops to make the decision themselves on whether they're going to follow the policy or allow an exception for this child of a gay parent to be baptized. All they've done is remove themselves as the people to blame and be upset with. And they've moved the accountability to the local leadership. And so now a local bishop can still enforce the policy or he can choose to allow an exception after serious consideration of the family's understanding of the gospel and the covenants that are going to be made and that that child's willingness and that family's willingness to support them uh, in living the gospel. The policy has not been retracted. It has not been removed. And this to me explains deeply why after they supposedly removed the policy six months ago. It showed up again in the newest version of the handbook released on the internet a few months back. Once you understand that they don't want the policy gone, they just want the points of contention from believing members to be gone, you can now see that in their rhetoric, they want to sound like they've removed the policy, but in actual practice, the handbook as well as his statement there that bishops still get to determine whether a child of a gay parent gets baptized, that is still in place. Would you mind reading that just one more time so that the audience can capture that the LGBT 2015 policy actually is not retracted and not
0: reversed? Here's the sentence in its entirety, Bill. As a result of our continued supplication, we recently felt directed to adjust the policy. Let me stop there. Adjust the policy, not remove it. Now continue. Ah, good point. To adjust the policy such that the baptism of children of LGBT parents may be authorized by bishops without first presidency approval if the custodial parents request the baptism and understand that a child will be taught about sacred covenants to be made at baptism. The policy, my friends, is still in place. You know, you're saying that brings a couple of thoughts to my mind. First off, it seems like this is uh, a huge blame-shifting mechanism. First off, the blame for the policy, according to President Nelson, goes to God. And now that they've adjusted the policy, not reversed it, as you very astutely point out, now the blame for implementing the policy goes away from President Nelson, and down to the bishops. So blame going up to God for the policy in the first place. Blame going down to bishops now for the implementation of the adjusted policy. And, Bill, and finally, they're getting this back to the way they wanted it to be originally. Because remember, they didn't announce the policy. They stuck it in the handbook by the dark of night. This was only to be read by the bishops and the stake presidents. The bishops and the stake presidents were supposed to start implementing this policy privately with members of their ward, members of their stake, and it was the bishops from the outset who were supposed to be the fall guys to take the blame for this policy, leaving the hands of the leaders clean. And now after three and a half years, and now getting closer to four years with this talk in September of 2019, President Nelson has finally come up with a way to get this policy back to the way it was
1: intended to be implemented in the first place four years ago. And now they, the top 15, get to wash their hands and say, I'm really sorry that your kid can't get baptized. I'm really sorry about that. But it's now the bishop's decision. And so we want to respect his keys and his stewardship and his authority. And now there is no room to appeal and get an exception, at least according to the way this is framed, it's now up to the bishop. And so if somebody gets a bishop who says, look, the policy's still in the handbook, and uh, President Nelson said, it's up to me, and I just don't think we're going to do this. Now the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve get to go, oh, that's unfortunate, but that's the rule. Sorry. <laughs> God has spoken. Yeah. And so as you point out, they've essentially done what they wish they would have done probably in the beginning, which is make the statement, make the rule, allow bishops to make exceptions, but strongly discourage them in the language of the handbook and then allow it to simply take its course without those top 15 getting the blame. But instead it's a shared blame between heavenly father and your local leader. Wow. I think that's a tremendous insight you have just made there, Bill. Thank you. I, uh, As I listened to this talk, it struck me as like, oh my goodness, I thought they retracted it, but that sentence shows that it is an adjusted policy, but it is still absolutely in place. And that to me explained why it was still showing up in the handbook. Well, now we get to the
0: fifth truth. And by the way, the fifth truth is not just a tag on. The fifth truth, as he will state, is you may know for yourself what is true and what is not by learning to discern the whisperings of the spirit. This is where President Nelson gives away the farm, as far as I'm concerned, in revealing that he is extremely defensive about all the criticisms that have been made of him. And he is going to now tell the audience as his fifth truth that they should pray to God to find out that what he has taught them is true and that the revelations that they have received, both the policy and its reversal, or should we start saying adjustment, I think, Bill, that both of those are from God and really they should not trouble themselves about it any further than that. He goes to the point of saying, look, if you don't believe me, ask God, and he will tell you. He doesn't say if he'll tell you if it's true, he says he will tell you that it's true. Are you ready to play the tape on that, Bill?
2: No. for the fifth truth. You may know for yourself what is true and what is not by learning to discern the whisperings of the Spirit. Ask your Heavenly Father if we truly are the Lord's apostles and prophets. Ask if we have received revelation on this and other matters. Ask if these five truths are, in fact, true. Now, in my capacity as President of the Church, I invoke a blessing upon you, beloved young adults. To be able to discern between right and wrong, between the laws of God and the conflicting voices of the world, I bless you with power to detect the adversary's deceptions. I bless you with greater capacity to receive revelation, and I bless you to be able to feel the infinite reach. Of God's perfect love for you.
1: So there's the conclusion of President Nelson's remarks in this, this shortened uh, eight minute video. And as I sat and listened to that conclusion, what he's, uh, doing, what he's doing is making an appeal to elevation emotion. Elevation emotion is the uh, psychological phenomenon where when people are encouraged, to have spiritual experiences, feelings inside their body that feel positive, when they're encouraged to do that in certain ways, those responses can be invoked. And what he's calling on members of the church to do is go pray about what I've just said. And if you feel good about what I just said, that trumps all the logic, all the science. It trumps all the data. It allows the member of the church to essentially say, I don't care what is going on out there in the world. I don't care how weak my argument is. I felt good about it. I know these guys are telling the truth. It's a manipulation. And President Nelson here is essentially saying like, look, the entire world is saying we got this wrong. All logic seems to point that we got this wrong. All the data seems to point that we got this wrong. But you can know we got it right by you feeling good about uh, me and the 14 guys behind me as you pray about whether this was from God or not. Um, he comes off a little to me, not to bring in politics, but Trump has this thing where whenever he feels his egos poked, he has a, a need to tweet out something, to explain himself or to pick on somebody else and diminish the, the point of view that someone else is holding. And President Nelson, while doing it with a smile, while doing it with a soft voice, while certainly doing it way more tact and couth than than our president of the United States, the president of our church is still doing the same thing, which is everybody's saying we're wrong and that we messed up and we don't love people. And well, here's here's our response to that. I feel a need to defend us. Um, it seems like the same kind of motivation, but but it seems very heavy in gaslighting, in manipulation, and in stating things that seem no other way to be seen than him flat out lying. Yes,
0: I agree with you and I'll tell you that I I was a bit abashed when I introduced this by saying he doesn't say to pray if it's true, but that it's true. And then immediately the clip that's played in the highlights version is him saying, ask your heavenly father, if we truly are the Lord's apostles and prophets, ask if we have received revelation on this and other matters, ask if these five truths are in fact true. So that sounds like it's contradicting what I said. And to some extent, It is, and I want to give credit to him for saying if three times. I do have to note, however, that immediately prior to this statement, under the fifth truth, part that was not played in the highlights trailer, which you will hear if you go back and listen to the talk in its entirety, is what I said. He starts off by saying, My dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to seek earnestly a confirmation from the Spirit that what I have told you is true and is from the Lord. And then after the three ifs sentence He then says that he's going to give his witness. I so bless you and express my love for you along with my witness. This is the prophet of the Lord speaking along with my witness that this is the Lord's church and that he presides over and guides all we do. So his three if sentence is bracketed first by a pleading with everybody to seek earnestly a confirmation from the Spirit that what I have told you is true and is from the Lord. And then on the other end, the other bookend from that three if statement is his witness, his prophetic witness, that this is the Lord's church and that he presides over and guides all we do. So he's definitely hedging his bets there. This is why I see this as being something that he is very defensive about, that people are challenging his ability to lead the church, to receive revelation, to recognize revelation, to pronounce. Real revelation from God. And so he's going to tell him the way it is and says, look, if you don't believe me, you ask God and he'll tell you as well. Meanwhile, couching that fifth truth in terms that are designed to lead people to the correct conclusion. Remember what he said before is that basically God is the arbiter of truth. I speak for God and don't listen to anybody else for truth. Not social media news outlets, not Google, and certainly not Disaffected members of the church. So he's hedging his bets all the way along in really a rather masterful uh, way if you count this kind of propaganda as being masterful. And indeed, propaganda can be masterful, as I think is illustrated here. Finally, finally, Bill, last thing I'm going to say about this, actually, it's not quite the last, is when he says, Now, in my capacity as president of the church, remember that's before he says, I'm going to give you my witness. But he also says, I invoke a blessing upon you. Beloved young adults, to be able to discern between right and wrong, between the laws of God and the conflicting voices of the world, and I bless you with power to detect the adversary's deceptions." Well, this blessing is very important, but I'm not sure that it's the conflicting voices of the world that the young adults and the members of the church need to be concerned about. It's the conflicting voice of President Nelson. It's the conflicting voice of the church. The church itself gives a conflicting voice on this issue, even in this very talk.
1: That's where the conflict comes in that members are concerned about. Uh, Two quick things. One is, as you're uh, pointing to and what was there in that audio, this idea that he's invoking a blessing for the members of the church to be able to discern right from wrong, truth from error, while at the same time, our history necessitates, it dictates, it imposes that we accept that leaders of the church who are at the top of the rung, they're the closest to Heavenly Father in hearing his voice, have had difficult ability in discerning truth from error, in discerning right from wrong, number one. Number two is that as he invokes this blessing and asks members to pray about the truth of what he just said, he has absolutely no ifs, ands, or buts He has taught demonstrable falsehoods in this talk. Again, I'll give one example. There were many that you and I hashed out, at least three. One of them was that the prerequisites for going to the temple have not changed. They have. So if you, as a believing member, go back to Heavenly Father, how in the hell do you get on your knees and say a prayer asking for the truth of a talk that explicitly contains demonstrable falsehoods in it. So now you get a fuzzy feeling that what was said was true in the midst of knowing that there are falsehoods in the thing that you prayed about. And now you are stuck in a conundrum that has no right answer. You're a rat in a maze where there is no solution. And while you may feel good about it, in the end, You are stuck with walls on all sides. Right, and that reminds me
0: of the old statement about a rat in a maze is free to go wherever he wants as long as he stays in the maze.
1: Yeah, and that's what the believing member is to do. You can go pray about this talk, but there were falsehoods in it. How in the hell do you discern from a fuzzy feeling which pieces were true, knowing that some pieces weren't? That seems, uh, again, absurd, ridiculous... Uh, uh, That seems crazy. And yet that's what we do in Mormonism. We say a bunch of bull crap and then we tell people to go pray and receive the truth about it. Right. And from
0: President Nelson's point of view, or more generally from a propagandist's point of view, getting
1: the audience to believe the falsehoods you are telling is the entire point. Yeah. Yep. And which is the whole idea of gaslighting. History, according to Nelson, didn't happen the way it actually did. And now you're going to send members off to pray about it. Now they know those things are true. And hence, it becomes part of their own testimony in spite of it not being true. And, and, and then again, just saying, like, I know I've said it three times already, but Just if I go to God and I pray and I feel good about what was said, so now I know it's true, even though I also know it's not true, at least in specific spots, what you've done is you've made the ability to discern right from wrong using uh, the gift of the Holy Ghost as a tool that is absolutely entirely worthless. Right. But the benefit for the church is, is that the Holy ghost by
0: definition will reveal truth to you. But the only truth it will reveal is to confirm that what the leaders have said is true. And in the words of elder Oaks, the first counselor in the first presidency, if God tells you to do anything different than what the leaders have
1: said, then you are getting that revelation from the wrong source. Yeah. Do you hear that? Stephen snow, you're getting revelation from the wrong source. All roads lead to Rome. Right. And you bring up the political aspect of this by comparing it to President
0: Trump and saying this is very different than the tweets that he shoots out with some regularity. Uh, This is much smoother, much more polished. The parallel in politics that I see between the speech by President Nelson is uh, closer, in my mind, to Richard Nixon's checker's speech from 1952. I'm not going to go into detail about that. If you know about it already, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you want to figure it out a little bit closer, go ahead and check that one source that President Nelson warned you at the beginning of this talk. You're not supposed to check and that would be Google. Just put in there Richard Nixon checker speech and you'll see exactly why it is. And I think that this talk pretty closely resembles that speech from 1952.
1: I want to say one last thing, which is people come to me all the time. When When I do a Q&A with groups, when I do firesides or presentations, and I open it up to people asking questions, one of the questions I get the most is, Bill, do you think these guys know? Do they know the church isn't true? Do they know the data doesn't add up? And I have to be honest, I used to take the position like, no, I think they believe it. But as time has gone on, as I sit back as an outsider, and I watch this talk, I watch What it was designed to do, I watched the false statements that were inserted to replace history as it actually happens. When I look at the imposing of not taking any blame at all in this policy being created, trying to have it be a retraction six months ago, and then trying to replace it uh, six months later, the, the inability to take the blame, the wanting the membership to see it a certain way, the wanting the membership to perceive certain historical events as having occurred one way, when in reality they didn't. Um, What becomes obvious to me is that this talk from top to bottom was deceptive and dishonest, but more than that, it was intentional. And once you start to see that you had labeled these guys as good people, and then you begin to see the -the behind-the-scenes manipulation and deceptiveness, all of a sudden, for me, a space opened up where I was able to sit back and go, you know what? I think these guys know it's not true. And in fact, talks like this point directly at that, that these men are not good men. And, and I'm left then to say, when people ask, my answer to them now is, yeah, these guys know it's not true. And they know the deception is real and they perpetuate it knowingly. Yeah, well, I hear what you're saying. I think there's still room for good faith argument
0: on both sides. But in support of what you're saying here, Bill, I will say that this talk is very carefully crafted. And you cannot carefully craft a talk this way by accident. So there you have it. Okay, so I think we have thrashed that one out. But this has been time well spent. This is an historic talk by President Nelson. We will see If it has the desired effect of stanching the hemorrhaging of young Mormons out of the church, my expectation is it will do nothing to stanch that flow, but may actually make it worse. It's been a great, great time this evening talking with you,
1: Bill Real, about this talk. Thank you so much for joining me. I think it is cognitive dissonance at an increased pace through what he said, but I'm glad to have been on and to have had this conversation. And by the way, let me add before I sign off that it is somewhat
0: easy to sit back in my armchair and criticize President Nelson. It is more difficult to actually contribute something substantive to the conversation, so I want to do that at this point. I want to say what it is that I would have advised President Nelson to say at this talk if indeed he felt it necessary to give this talk to the assembled student body at BYU. This is what I would say. President Nelson, I want you to go out there and say the following words. Look. Everybody. When we passed the policy in 2015, we were trying to do the right thing. We don't have all the answers. We can't always see ahead with crystal clarity. We see through a glass darkly as well. We had the best intentions, but after we passed the policy, we saw that our best intentions were not realized, that people were actually hurt by this policy. And after it became apparent to us that the good that we had intended by the policy was being outweighed by the pain that was being caused by this policy, we decided to change the policy back to the way it was before. I am sorry for the pain that this has caused. It was not intentional. I hope you will accept my apology as we continue to do our best together in a united effort to follow the will of the Lord and to manifest more truly by our actions and our words the love that God has for all of his children. I think that if President Nelson had given that speech, he would have knocked it out of the park. But he didn't consult me. Maybe next time. President Nelson, I am open for consultation for a modest consultation fee, a modest stipend, so to speak. I'll be waiting by the phone for your call. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.